Hello and welcome to this teaching from Skip Heitzig of Calvary Albuquerque. We pray that God uses this message to reach people around the world with His love. If this message encourages you, we'd love to hear about it. Email us at mystory@calvaryabq.org. And if you'd like to support this ministry financially, you can give online securely at calvaryabq.org/give. What does it take to steal your joy? To answer honestly, you must discover what you're passionate about. As we continue our series, Technicolor Joy, we learn this is important because things won't always go our way. In the message, The Happy Prisoner, Skip teaches that we need the right perspective to deal with unfavorable circumstances. Now we invite you to open your Bible to Philippians chapter 1 as he begins the message, The Happy Prisoner. Father, we do pray and I do ask that you will speak to us through your word. These are old and tested principles of truth. But Lord, they are going to be new and revolutionary to some and as up to date as this morning's headlines. I pray, Father, that in hearing them, we would be not only like the prophet who said, Speak, Lord, your servant hears but we would have that desire to put into practice those principles that are revealed. Only that can be done by your grace, and we ask for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So a guy went to prison, and on his first day, uh, he heard somebody yell out of one of the cells, a number. He said, 43! And the whole cell block broke out in laughter. He thought, well, that's odd. And a few moments later, another prisoner yelled out, 75! And everybody broke out in laughter again. And then, 56! And everybody broke out in laughter. So he turned to his cellmate, who had been there a long time. He goes, I I don't get what's happening. What, What am I hearing here? He says, well, you know, we've been here so long. And we've been telling the same jokes to each other over and over and over again that we've just numbered them all. So now all we have to do is yell out a number, we think of that joke, and we laugh. So the prisoner said, wow, can I try that? And he said, sure, give it, a, give it a shot. So he shouted out, 12, dead silence. Again, 12, dead silence. He says, what's happening? And the guy said, I guess some guys just can't tell a joke. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, I'm giving this a message title, The Happy Prisoner. Now that sounds like an oxymoron, because you don't associate happiness generally with being in prison. In fact, prison is a place where usually joy is absent. It's a place where life is unpleasant. It's a place where dreams go to die. I found a website for the criminal justice system called corrections.com in which this statement was on it. Most prisoners are unhappy. Many of them are unhappy all the time. Many contemplate or attempt suicide or self-mutilation. The suicide rate for American prisoners is between 5 to 15 times greater than it is for the general American population. End quote. I'm sharing that with you to begin with because I just want you to keep in mind that we are reading the letter 
of a prisoner, somebody who is incarcerated for his faith in Christ. Let's look at our verses uh, this morning and we'll see what he has to say. Chapter 1, verse 12. It's a new paragraph of thought now. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul is a prisoner. He's a prisoner in Rome. These are not the best conditions that he has ever been in. This is not the happiest place. Paul is physically bound. And Paul's ministry is severely restricted. And yet, do you remember what the theme of this book is? Tell me what it is. Joy. It's a letter oozing with joy. Four chapters, 104 verses, and one of the themes, the major themes, is joy. Let's look at a few things. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Yes, And I will rejoice. Chapter 2, verse 17. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord. And I say it again, rejoice. So he's a prisoner incarcerated in a jail, saying, rejoice, rejoice, I'm glad, rejoice. Now, either he's a nutcase, he's been beat up one too many times, so now his brains are addled, or, number two, he's lying through his teeth. He's putting on a good Christian face. Oh, Christians are supposed to act this way. Rejoice, smile, wee! Or, he's on to something. And we need to find out what it is that makes him so joyful. And so that leads me to give you a statement that I think sort of encapsulizes the whole book. And that's this. Spiritual maturity can be measured by what it takes to steal your joy. Spiritual maturity can be measured by what it takes to steal your joy. What does it take to end the experience of joy as a believer to the area of anger, bitterness, whatever it would be. Spiritual maturity can be measured by what it takes to steal your joy. The other night, my grandson spent the night, and it's always a joy. And um, we got up in the morning, I was making breakfast for him, and so he was uh, watching cartoons, and he came and goes, I'm looking for Winnie the Pooh. You know, we we love watching that, and we both love Winnie the Pooh. So, well, we didn't find it, but that's what we were looking for. But I've often wondered if life were a Winnie the Pooh episode, what character would you be? Would you be, perhaps, the timid piglet? Would you be Pooh Bear himself, who likes to eat a lot? 
Would you be the important but pushy rabbit? Would you be the wise but boring owl? I'll tell you who Paul the Apostle would be. You know who he'd be? He'd be Tigger. (laughs) Paul the Apostle would be that exuberant, ebullient, uh, resilient, bouncy tiger character named Tigger. You see, Paul has every reason to be Eeyore. He has no outward reason at all to be joyful, but he is joyful. I found an article I wanted to put up and have you see it as I read it to you from Psychology Today that said, quote, people are unhappy because they view their lives as prisons. Many people feel trapped by aspects of their life, trapped in an unhappy relationship or trapped in an unfulfilling job or generally unhappy with their life despite basic needs being met, end quote. So don't you find it interesting that this dude is in prison, he is not licking his wounds, he is not sending out invitations to a pity party, but he's saying rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Now to find out why, we need to follow the progress of his thinking in these three verses. So I'm glad we only have three verses. Because we're going to begin with his passion, move on to his problems, and end with his perspective. You have to understand his passions to really understand his problems because one led to the other, but then we'll end with his perspective. And there's enough information here for me to draw out three principles. Let me share the first with you. Godly passion is commendable. Godly passion is commendable. Paul had a passion in life. That seems to be a very popular question. What's your passion in life? Paul had one. He had a master passion. If you know anything at all about Paul the Apostle, you know he was a pretty determined guy. He had what we would call a type A personality, highly motivated with a single focus. And generally, people like that are highly successful people because they never quit. They never say die. They never give up. Everyone, including you, has a master passion. What drives you? What does your mind think of when it's in neutral and you've got nothing going on? All the activities are gone. What is the one thing above everything that you want or seek for or want to do more than anything else? For some people, it's a career. And for those people who make that their master passion, everything else takes a back seat. Sadly, even relationships will often take a back seat. For other people, it's power. For other people... It's money. Let me remind you of what Paul's passion was. Paul's passion can be summed up by two words, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. The message that changes people's lives was what he lived for. It was his master passion. How much was this on his mind? Well, look at verse 5. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now look at verse 7. I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel you are partakers with me of grace. Look at verse 12. I want you to know, brethren, the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Verse 17. But the latter, out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. 
Look at verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now that is only this chapter. If you were to add up all of the times in all of Paul's writings that he mentions the gospel, it's 72 times. The gospel, the gospel. How are you doing, Paul? The gospel. What's up? The gospel. What do you want out of life? The gospel. What are you doing? The gospel. That is his master passion. Now that can be summed up by two verses, both found in the book of Romans. The first is Romans 1.15, where he says, As much as is in me. I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Did you get that language? As much as is in me, to the fullest extent of my being, it's what I want. That's my passion. The second is in Romans 15, verse 20, where he said, For it has always been my ambition. You could substitute the word passion. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ is not known lest I build on another man's foundation. Question, why is that his passion? Why would that thing that at one time he tried with all of his might to stop be now his passion? Remember, Paul went around putting out the fire of the gospel, keeping it from spreading. He went to Damascus to stop the gospel. Why is this now his passion? Simple to answer that. Because the gospel was the only thing that could change him. Nothing else could. Nothing else did. On that Damascus road, when he saw that light and heard that voice, and he received that Jesus, his life was never the same. That's important. Because until you've experienced the gospel's power, you will never have a gospel passion. It's only people who have seen and felt and experienced the power of the gospel in their own lives that it becomes to them a passion. William Booth, who started the Salvation Army, said, Some men's passion is for gold. Some men's passion is for art. Some men's passion is for fame. He said, My passion is for souls. If Paul would have stood there when Booth said that, he'd have stuck out his hand and said, Put her there. You and I track, because that was Paul's passion as well. In fact, Paul said, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Paul had seen its power, now Paul has its passion. Let me just say that a godly passion like this, is commendable. So much so that I look for it in people. And I've, I've gotten good at noticing it when I find it. And whenever I find it, I exploit it. If I find some young person who's got that fire in their eyes, that sparkle, that, that real deep desire to know God and serve Christ and learn the Bible and preach the gospel, I want to bring that person as close as I can under my wing. And train that person, equip that person to get out and do what is their passion. So godly passion is commendable. But that brings a a second movement. 
We go from Paul's passion to Paul's predicament or his problems. And he mentions them in verse 12. Before we jump into the verse, let me just say that one always brings the other. A godly passion always invites great problems. Did you hear that? A a godly passion always involves or invites great passion. Why is that? Well, because when you're passionate about souls, you are entering a battleground on which Satan has been fighting a long time. He's got a lot of experience. So when you say, I am passionate about the gospel, I'm gonna sh- I want to save souls, you are painting a bullseye on you. You are a target. Satan will be after you. It's a war he's been engaged in. So the Great Commission will always bring great conflict. In fact, Jesus even said, faith can sometimes be fatal. He promised his disciples, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So here is Paul. He's got this passion, the gospel, the gospel, gospel, the gospel. But then he says in verse 12, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, stop right there. Something happened to Paul. He's mentioning it. Something happened to this passionate man. What was it? He's in jail. Again. That's what happened to him. He's been there many times before. He's been beaten many times before. He's had hardship many times before, all because of his passion for the gospel. That's what happened to him. So now, he has a jail ministry. A prison ministry. But not like he expected. You know, if you have a prison ministry, you go to the prison, you visit the prisoners, you go home and have a nice meal with your family. Not Paul. He lived there. That was his prison ministry. It is not what he expected. Now, sitting in a Roman prison, he does not have the freedom to go out and plant churches and share the gospel here and train up leaders there. He's stuck. You should know that Paul, he's in Rome. He always wanted to go to Rome. It was part of his passion. He wrote to the Romans and he said, Pray for me that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. But that's not exactly what happened. Something bad happened to this man. And here's what happened. After his third missionary journey, he goes back to Jerusalem. He's in the temple area with another fellow going through a ceremonial ritual. Some of the leaders spot Paul there. They start a riot and they attack him. A Roman soldier arrests Paul, not to punish him, but to protect him from the mob. Takes Paul, is about to have Paul beaten. Paul pulls his Roman citizenship card out, so you can't beat me, I'm a Roman citizen. So he is then taken from Jerusalem to Caesarea by the sea where he spends two years and he goes through three trials in two years. He stands before Felix, he stands before Festus, he stands before Herod, Agrippa. And after two years he finally says, I'm done. This judicial process is crazy. I appeal my case to Caesar in Rome. Every Roman citizen had that right. So they put him on a ship. It is not a cruise ship. 
It's not a princess cruise. It is a prison cruise. And they put him on this boat. They send him to Rome. He almost doesn't make it to Rome. The ship sinks. He has to swim to shore. But he finally goes to Rome where he's put in jail again. All of that is under this banner. But the things which happened to me. That's what he is referring to. Now that, that set of circumstances is enough to change any Tigger into an Eeyore pretty quickly. You know that incarceration will always challenge your joy. Restriction of any kind is a challenge to your joy. Confinement of any sort will challenge your joy. Some of you feel chained to a job. It's a tyrant to you. Some of you feel chained to a relationship or a set of responsibilities you didn't sign up for. And maybe because of that, your passion is gone. It's dried up. This is not what you had in mind. You're thinking back to that moment when you finally said, I surrender my life to you, Jesus. And I don't just mean salvation. Maybe you came to the point after salvation where you said, now I'm going to get serious. I'm going to really live for Christ from this day forward. But here you are today, and you're thinking back to that day, and this is not what you had in mind that day. In fact, could it be, is it possible, that when you said, Lord, I surrender to your plan, that you said that like the couple who went to the architect and asked the architect to design a house for them, the architect discovered the couple already designed it for themselves, just wanted the architect to sanction it. Maybe when you said, Lord, I surrender... My life to you, what you meant is, I surrender my will. I hope it is your will, Lord. Here are my plans for my life. I just want your stamp on it, because you must want what I want. And now you're going, this is not what I thought I signed up for. Well, Paul is about to say something very revolutionary. This is where we really need to listen. So we move from his passion to his problems to his perspective. How does he view all that has happened to him? Now, as we dive into this, I'm just going to review. What is the theme of this letter? Joy. Sixteen times, sixteen times in this letter, the word joy, the word rejoice, or the word rejoicing are found. No less than sixteen times. We've already seen the object of Paul's joy, the gospel. We've seen the challenge to Paul's joy, the things that happened, the prison, the beatings, etc., Now, let me show you the reason for his joy. And that can all be summed up by a single word in verse 12. It's the word furtherance. But I want you to know, brethren, verse 12, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now back to that word, furtherance. You may have a Bible that doesn't say that. It might say advancement or advance or spread or progress. Those are all good translations. Mine says furtherance. The Greek word is prokope. And prokope means to advance or to make progress, but it means something very, very unique. It means a forward movement in spite of obstacles. Obstacles are involved. It makes motion forward, but in the midst of obstacles. 
So, the word prokope was used of pioneers cutting their way through brushwood, cutting the undergrowth away so you could go on it. It was also used for soldiers advancing through obstacles. It was also sometimes used as a nautical term for ships making headway while there was a headwind. You get the idea? There's always an obstacle involved. It's going forward, 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 but in the midst of obstacles. So what Paul wants them to know is, I want you to know, brethren, that all that has happened to me, the incarcerations, the beatings, the mistrials, the further incarcerations, none of that has stopped the advance of the gospel. In fact, it cleared the way. It actually furthered it. It made progress in it. Now, I want you to see that. So look at verse 13. He's going to give you three ways the gospel is furthered. Number one, it is furthered for Roman soldiers. God's plan has been furthered for Roman soldiers. Verse 13, so it has become evident. Now watch this. To the whole palace guard... The word is praetorion. We get the word praetorium from that. And the praetorium guard was the elite um, personal soldiers for the emperor. There was about 10,000 of them in the Roman Empire. They were the bodyguards of the emperor. Now Paul is incarcerated in Rome, so he is somehow attached to the palace. Now he's not in the palace. He's in a rented home, the book of Acts tells us. He's chained to a guard 24 hours a day in a rented house. But the people chained to him are the praetorian guard. That would be like um, being chained to the Secret Service or to the um, a CIA, that elite. Now, let me just stop for a second. I believe, and I'm guessing, that somebody in the Church of Rome, maybe when they got together for a prayer meeting of some kind, They got together, and one of the prayers was something like this. Lord, you know, you're doing such a great work here in Rome, but man, if there was any way possible that the praetorian elite guards of the emperor himself in Caesar's household could somehow hear the gospel, they are unreachable. I don't know how we could ever get the gospel to them. God said, okay, I'll answer that prayer. How? By Paul's chains. Now Paul's chained to them. Now think. Think of what it was like to be chained to Paul the Apostle for six hours. That's how it would work. There are 24 hours a day, four soldiers chained six hours at a time to Paul. So Paul couldn't eat without being chained. He couldn't sleep without being chained. Everything he did 24 hours was chained to a guard. Now we often think, oh, Paul was in chains. But think of it the other way. So was the soldier. Can you imagine what it's like to listen to Paul? What do you think Paul brought up during that six hours? The gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. That's his passion. He, you couldn't shut him up. Have you ever shared with somebody in a conversation, you bring up the gospel, they don't like what you have to say, so they walk away? They can't walk away. Talk about a captive audience. F.B. Meyer tries to paint the picture of what it would be like. He said, and I quote, At times the hired room would be thronged with people to whom the apostles spoke words of life. 
And after they withdrew, the enemy would, or the sentry, excuse me, the soldier, the sentry would sit beside him filled with many questions as to the meaning of the words which this strange prisoner spoke. At other times, especially at night, the soldiers and the apostle would be left to talk. And in those dark, lonely hours, the apostle would tell the soldier after soldier about his own proud career in early life, of his opposition to Christ, his ultimate conversion, and would make it clear that he was there as a prisoner, not for any crime, not because he raised a rebellion or a revolt, but because he believed that he whom the Roman soldiers had crucified under Pilate was the Son of God and the Savior of men. Now what is the result of all of this chained to a Roman guard mean? It means some of them got saved. I know that to be a fact because when he closes this letter, Philippians, in chapter 4, verse 22, almost tongue-in-cheek, he says, All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Wink, wink. Isn't that great? Some of those soldiers who were unreachable got reached, and there's only one way they could, by being chained to a Christian. So the incarceration, the suffering that Paul experienced, it furthered God's plan for Roman soldiers. But there's a second I want you to notice. It furthered God's plan for Roman citizens. Go back to verse 13. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard, comma, and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. You know, Paul didn't just write words without meaning. He didn't say, I I just need to fill that sentence in, so I'll just put two of the rest. It means something. He was chained to soldiers, but it's become evident to not only them, but to the rest. What does that mean? Here's what it means. Paul was under house arrest, we're told in Acts 28. House arrest meant that there were certain freedoms the prisoner had. He lived in a house, but chained to a soldier 24-7. He could not leave the house, but people could come and visit him. So Acts 28 tells us that Jewish leaders came to visit him, Christian leaders came to visit him, citizens of Rome came to visit him. Acts 28 says, For two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Now listen to these words. Boldly and without hindrance he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing. Here's the principle. Don't miss this principle. The longest period of Paul's incarceration was the greatest period of Paul's impact. Staggering. The longest period of Paul's incarceration was the greatest period of Paul's impact. In other words, Paul's confinement was God's assignment. That prison became his pulpit. Oh, and by the way, just a little FYI, Paul wasn't just being chained to a soldier and giving Bible studies to people. He spent a lot of time writing books. The very book you are reading was written during that time. Ephesians, written during that time. Philippians, during that time. Colossians, during this prison stay. Uh, Philemon, written. Those four prison epistles, all written during this time. And, and... He's having Bible studies at the expense of the Roman government. How cool is that? There was never an issue back then with the separation of church and state. They paid for it and he preached. 
Now, here's what I'm wondering. The next time you are tempted to think, man, I'm stuck with this job. Hate it, but I'm stuck here. Or you think, I am shackled to this desk, or I am imprisoned by this person. You know, you could see it as an opportunity. Not an incarceration, an opportunity. If, if, and only if, your passion is the gospel. I'll guarantee you, if your passion is not the gospel, it's just an inconvenience to you. It's just a horrible, bitter experience of suffering. Why would God allow it? Unless you see it as an opportunity. If you see it as an opportunity and it's your passion to preach the gospel, you'll see it as a pulpit. You'll see it as a way to get the gospel out. So Paul's suffering, his jail sentence, was an opportunity for the furtherance of God's plan for Roman soldiers. It furthered God's plan for Roman citizens. And finally, and we'll close with this, it furthered God's plan, listen, for reluctant saints. Reluctant saints. I find there's a lot of reluctant saints. I find them all over the place. Just a little ashamed of the gospel, a little reluctant to say anything that they believe. So verse 14 is about that. And most of the brethren in the Lord, those are fellow believers, having become confident by my chains, my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now you know what that tells me. That tells me that people in Rome, Christians in Rome, were scared to say anything. They were timid. They were frightened to announce, I'm following Jesus Christ. He's my Lord and Savior. Here's my testimony. They were afraid. And understandably, um, Paul ended up in jail. They could too. But in, in watching and hearing about Paul being so bold and unhindered to soldiers and to people who visit him, the citizens of Rome, they started thinking differently. They started having thoughts like, if God can use Paul in jail, God can certainly use me out of jail. So they became a little more bold. And so they're not in, pra- in prison. Paul is. They're citizens that live out there in Rome live in that house, this house, the Roman Forum, work in that market. So now these citizens who can go out are emboldened by Paul who's stuck in prison and now they're reaching the kind of people that Paul couldn't reach. So it furthered God's plan for these reluctant saints. So think of it. Instead of seeing those prison guards as a nuisance or those prison chains as a hindrance, Paul saw them all as a furtherance. What a perspective. I'm sure that I'm speaking to people right now who are feeling chained to something. Let me give you an example. You may be a mother. You've given up a career. You went to college for that career. You quit your career. Now you're devoted to raising children at home. All of that investment is sort of not being used. And you may feel like many do. I'm in prison here. Let me encourage you with the example of Susanna Wesley. Susanna Wesley had 19 children. Do you think she ever felt confined? 19 kids. Last week on a, the platform we had a, a mom who had 8 children. Another one who had 10 children. Susanna Wesley had 19 kids. She was often feeling very constricted. 
But she had two sons, John Wesley and Charles Wesley, who shook the British Isles with the gospel. One is a preacher, one is a hymn writer. By her imprisonment, she furthered the gospel. Maybe you feel chained to a job or a career. Now, it could be that you're even successful in your job, successful in your career. In fact, the more successful you get, you're feeling more imprisoned. You're sort of stuck there. You know, you have to produce more and more and more. And so you, you think thoughts like, well, I'd love to do more for Christ, but I'm stuck here and I'm very successful and I've got to keep this going. I have employees and I have responsibilities. Let me encourage you with the story of J.C. Penney, who made an enormous amount of money in his corporation. Still does, even though he's long gone. J.C. Penney, a Christian businessman who felt sort of imprisoned by what he did, but decided, well, he could give the money away to gospel work. So get this, 90% of his income he gave away. He kept and lived on 10%. Now, most Christians give away 10%. That's their tithe, and they live on 90%. He decided, I'll reverse that. I can live happily, and I make a lot of money. I can live on 10%. I'll give 90% away to those people preaching the gospel. He used that confinement, so to speak, to get the gospel out. Maybe you feel chained to a sickbed. You're not here, but you're going to hear this message in a hospital or a convalescent home. You feel chained to a bed, imprisoned within those four walls. Let me encourage you with the story of Charlotte Elliott, who was an invalid. Charlotte Elliott, as an invalid, wrote 150 hymns. Some have become very famous. The most famous one was sung at all the Billy Graham crusades, Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Written while Charlotte Elliott was an invalid and couldn't get out. And perhaps this message is going to be heard by a prisoner. I mean, a real prisoner in a prison cell. We get letters from all over the country where prisoners will tune into the radio broadcast and they'll write. Let me encourage you. Maybe you came to faith in Christ if you're a prisoner and you're hearing this message. You came to faith in Christ while you were in prison. Understand this. Martin Luther translated the Bible in jail. In the Wartburg prison in Germany. Then there's the story of John Bunyan. You know, John Bunyan was a preacher in England, and he was fiery, and he saw great results, and so they arrested him and put him in the Bedford jail. He didn't stop preaching there. He shouted so loud that his voice could be heard over the walls, and people would gather outside the walls to listen to him. And so they thought, can't have this, and they put him in solitary confinement deep below in the dungeon, and so he decided to write, and he wrote Pilgrim's Progress there. Millions of people, millions of people have been inspired by that book. I like to read it at least once a year. So, let me conclude with this. Maybe, just maybe, you could be a happy prisoner. I can't do anything for your shackles. Health, circumstances may restrict you. They do all of us at some point. But maybe you could become a happy prisoner, not a sappy prisoner. Not, woe is me, life's a bummer. Not a scrappy prisoner, where you're fighting and and lashing out at people. 
but a happy prisoner. Worked for Paul. And I dare say, this larger-than-life figure named Paul the Apostle had it far worse than I've ever had it. And I've had loss in my life. You have had loss in your life. I'm feeling restrictions of all kinds as my age increases. And one day it will increase to the point where I won't be able to do what I did. But like Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, I'm in these chains, but the Word of God is not chained. There's always a way, if and only if, that's your passion. Father, we want to end there. We know that your passion is the gospel and was the gospel. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. You were willing to go through the sacrifice of the death of your son. Jesus, you were willing to go to the cross and shed your blood to buy people back to God. I pray that what my brothers and sisters may be experiencing in their little prison experiences due to health or due to employment or unemployment, to relationship or lack of relationship, that the prison they feel would become an opportunity, a fulcrum, if that is their passion. And if not, I pray that you would make it so. Because there's nothing quite as thrilling as leading another person to faith in Christ or telling that story or giving our testimony. So use us, Lord, no matter where we find ourselves. Again, we ask it for your glory and your honor that Jesus' name would be great and more famous than it is. Amen. Though Paul was stuck in a prison cell, he still had the joy of Christ. Does this encourage you to share your joy with others? Let us know. Email calvaryabq.org. And just a reminder, you can give financially to this work at calvaryabq.org. Thank you for listening to this message from Skip Heitzig of Calvary Albuquerque.